Welcome to the Black Tech Fest podcast. This is our roundup of everything that is going on in the black community with regards to technology, innovation, creativity, and culture. Hello. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Black Data Matters, Algorithmic Bias. My name is Jamila, Jamila Mimar, and I'm the CEO of MindSenses Global, where I have businesses apply AI. I'm very glad to be able to moderate today's session on algorithmic bias. The audience, we also have a chance to ask questions. So please don't hesitate to post your questions and I will add them to my list. First of all, let me introduce our panelists. We have Naomi Kalman, who is a senior manager at Red Recruitment, where she leads uh, programs to enhance chances of black Africans and Caribbean students to, to obtain education and employment. We also have with us Katrina, Katrina French. She's the CEO of Stopwatch and an advocate for uh, fair and accountable poli policing. And we have with us Shakir, Shakir Mohammed, who is a research scientist at DeepMind, who is a leading edge in artificial intelligence and deep tech. So welcome everybody. I guess before we go deeper in the topic of algorithmic bias, it is important that we define what it is. So I have been made, making some research in terms of finding what it is. And the simplest definition I was able to find is the following. So algorithmic bias is defined as a systematic and repeatable errors by computer systems that can cause and derive unfair outcomes, such as giving privilege to one group over another. I guess this type of definition we can all relate to. Again, looking at research in this area, we found that most often data is being given as the first and primary uh, factor behind uh, algorithmic bias. My first question is to little bit challenge that. So is it really that only data that is behind algorithmic bias, or do we have other factors that contribute to that algorithmic bias? So let's start that first question with uh, Shakir. What are your views in terms of what causes algorithmic bias? And uh, thanks, Jamila. I, I really like that definition of a systematic and reproducible error. And I think in those two words, you can actually unpack the different kinds of components of where bias is coming in. So bias is coming in wherever there is systematic bias and error coming in. So, for example, the first one will be in living in a society that has sets of biases already, that bias is going to be reflected in the mindset, in the thinking, in the way that people are approaching their work, unless we are very careful about assessing. So we can start with that. Of course, data itself, as you mentioned, has a very important role of systematic bias, and that bias can come in in many areas. It's in the way we are measuring, it is in what we are even considering worthwhile measuring. Sometimes we don't have a measurement, so we fill in what's missing instead, and all of these can be sources of, of bias. And, uh, and then there is a third source of bias, which is in the actual technical computer algorithmic system that itself we are building that can have, you know, we make certain choices when we are deciding what variables to use, we are compressing the model, we are making choices as to how we are building the model using one approach versus another one, they themselves can introduce bias. So you have all these different factors combining with each 
other. And then what you get is effectively an artificial division, uh, a system of difference which is created, which empowers some and disempowers other people. And so it's something we do need to be careful. So I think the question of bias is a very deep one, very multifaceted. And I think it's important that we remember of that multifaceted nature that it has. That's very powerful, Shakir. I think, yeah, I, I totally agree with you that like you need like a whole ecosystem to deal with uh, algorithmic uh, bias. I guess the other issue with algorithms that like so much use in everyday decisions by governments, by companies, and the power of amplification just make the bias bigger and bigger. So let's kick to our next question in terms of what, what are real world examples of uh, algorithmic bias that has impacted uh, people, especially ethnic minorities. So I guess I, first I go to Naomi. Hello. This summer we actually saw one in, in action. The A-levels in the UK were determined by what was come to be known as the algorithm, <laughs> you know, an almost scary term because it caused so much um, upset for students and then so many results that weren't deemed to be fair. And what had happened is because exams couldn't go ahead, the government decided that they would have a combination of variables go towards predicting or estimating students' grades because they couldn't sit their exam. And that was initially teacher rankings of students according to where they ranked in class and also predictions. And that raised concerns initially because evidence shows that high achieving students from low income backgrounds in particular tend to be under predicted for their A-levels. And ethnic minority students are more likely to be from lower income backgrounds and separate research also shows that they tend to have lower expectations from their teachers. And so that one input already was riddled with bias that we see in the real world. On top of that, government had decided that they would standardise the outcomes to ensure that schools were performing not too far away from their historic performance. Now, the thing about trying to maintain the status quo is that the status quo always has bias within it. And if you try and do that on purpose, you might then further exacerbate existing inequalities. A number of people warned about this, and sadly, on the day, what we saw was precisely that. So I work with hundreds of black students every year, and we had students who had Oxbridge offers and who were the highest performing people their school had sometimes seen in their entire history. Now, because the standardization meant that they were effectively limited by history, so limited by what people in their area had previously achieved, the algorithm gave them grades way below what they were expecting. So I had students who had Cambridge and Oxford offers expecting straight A's and A stars, given B's and C's, and therefore on that day, missing not just their Oxbridge offer, but offers everywhere else. Now, because government was forced into a U-turn, things worked out okay for most of them, but this is a real world example of what happens when you have a system that puts things that already have bias into a model, and then also try to maintain the status quo, which has bias. That's a great example, Naomi. I guess, you know, especially, you know, I'm thinking of algorithms, but also, you know, AI and artificial intelligence and machine learning. And one of the issues around that is that, you know, obviously it uses historical data to try to predict the future. This is fine if the future is a reflection of your past, but if the future is not a reflection of your past, this is where we have like big problems. So I guess, you know, that's just like another additional layer in terms of the issues we have. Uh, Katrina, I'm sure you have also a lot of examples from your area yeah. in terms of real life examples. 
Yes. Certainly do. So looking at the aspects of policing at Stopwatch, what we um, uncovered was that the Gangs Matrix, which is a police intelligence database devised by the okay. uh, Metropolitan Police in London in 2011, just after, well, 2011-12, just after the English riots, what basically happened was that the police decided that they needed to identify who were at risk of criminality, specifically serious violence. So they put mm -hmm. together uh, this database. And I think the main issues that we found with the database is that it was definitely discriminatory. Um, it used a quite, a, I suppose I say crude, but very rudimental Excel spreadsheet in which officers would put in scores or put in scores to do with the harm or risk that they um, calculated the individuals to have. And what we found was that off the back of Amnesty's research was that 80% of the people on the gang's matrix were 12 to 24 year olds. So actually really penalizing mm -hmm. and Know, focused on young people, children. They also mm -hmm. found that 78% was black and that 35% of the people on this, this tool had actually never committed a serious violent offense. And um, what we were challenging in terms of it was that police in intelligence is not, it's not neutral. Because the idea was, oh, well, we put this in the algorithm and it comes out, so that means it must be right. And I think we need to kind of zoom back into how these algorithms come. I think it's exactly what Naomi said, is if there's like bias in society already and the status quo is unequal, and then you produce mechanisms or use tools in the same fashion, you're likely to exacerbate that. So on the matrix in that time, looking back when Amnesty and Stopwatch did the research, there were 3,806 people. That's a huge amount of people. And they range from amber, green and red, less than five percent were red 64 percent were green and the police kind of posed this as a risk management tool which was there to divert people from crime when we asked how it was being assessed in terms of performance man management and like measurements they weren't actually measuring any outcomes um so we don't know if any posy was diverted from being a criminal or not but we definitely know that the harms that it caused were extraordinary so we had people with their driving licenses revoked by the DVLA because the DVLA had received information from the police because of this whole multi-agency um, multi in dis disciplinary sharing of information that the police were able to say, you're on this database, that means you are in a gang. Mm -hmm. um, no, not that the court has said, or we found, you know, credible evidence, it's just on the hearsay of police. And then that information was shared with other statutory agencies, losing people to lose some of the cases, places at college because they were deemed a threat. So to go to that college would have meant you was in another gang area and there was a threat. Or one of the young people in our being matrix report done by Patrick Williams at Manchester Met Metropolitan said that they were denied to stay at home with their family because it was seen as a risk to themselves if they stayed at home. So they were actually put in care for a short period of time. And going back to the DVA example, DVLA, and that's the driving license um, agency was that Lots of young people are doing gig economy jobs, you know, um, Uber or Deliveroo using, you know, mopeds to get around and then to have your license revoked on the basis of you being in the gang and that apparently you smoke cannabis, although they're not taking any cannabis tests or anything like that just felt wholly disproportionate. So what the police were doing was using AI, using policing tech to justify discriminatory policing. And then because most people in civil society, young people impacted had no, no understanding of it, it was incredibly difficult to challenge. Um, so we had a, ran a big campaign about finding out if you're on the gang's matrix. We also were very pleased that the information 
commissioner's office found that the Metropolitan Police were actually in breach of um, data protection laws. However, that doesn't address the human rights concerns. So for us, data's, you know, it, that's fine. And I respect that everybody has a right to privacy. However, you have human rights and those were breached. Um, and that's where I'm really fearful how AI and tech and the, the lack of transparency and the impact it can have on people's lives. And without that information, they have no idea what they're subjected to. So I'm really glad that this panel is being hosted because I think it's a timely conversation, especially in light of what Naomi said happened in the summer. Yeah, thanks, Katrina and Naomi, because we really heard like real examples. You know, these are algorithms that are having impacts on people, on the way they live. So, you know, if especially if like someone is assessed as, you know, highly likely at risk, that could be, you know, could have a detrimental impact on the, you know, uh, the likelihood of getting a job, of getting like education. So, you know, we really need to take this, uh, you know, seriously, which then leads me to the next stage of, uh, you know, our questions. So um, I get really frustrated, like, so when I hear about uh, an AI tool or an algorithm uh, that has been shelved or has been just like ditched because it was biased. So I understand, you know, if there is bias, obviously the algorithm shouldn't be in, in there in the first place. But like where I get the frustration, I say like, surely, someone somewhere could have done something about it. Do we, you know, is the answer always the, to ditch? Don't we have the power to address and to fix the bias? So we have like free biased algorithm or the free biased AI, which leads me to the kind of question, what do we need to do to address bias? What are the mitigation strategies, you know, to basically get free or you know, get rid of uh, bias. So let's let me go back to Shakir. In terms of mitigation uh, strategies. Yes, I think um, the two examples that we heard, the one of education and policing, they they just emphasize how important when they, when there are harms. They infect so many things. It's not just those individuals. It's the communities, their families, and it affects those people their entire lives. So, you know, this idea of the U-turn is not, that is not a solution. I think that's what you're trying to say because the harm is just so much. So I think really the harm, the way we're going to address this particular kind of problem is going to need to be at every level. It's going to be at the technical level, at the organizational level, at the regulatory level, at the societal and grassroots level. And so what I really think the first thing we need to do and what Black Tech Fest is about and what this panel is about is building very broad coalitions of people. Coalitions between people like me who are technical designers and experts, people like Katrina and Naomi who are on the ground, who understand and see the distress. Because when we actually come together, then I think we have so many example. Another very powerful example is facial recognition. And over the last five years or so, we've seen that kind of coalition from amazing women in our fields, Black women who saw this distress, wrote those papers, exposed the issue, and then five years later, building those coalitions, every company now has decided we are not going to be involved in facial recognition. Cities and states themselves have decided that we're actually going to ban facial recognition. So I think, you know, the first, the first solution maybe, and maybe the hardest work is to do that kind of broad coalition. I have some other thoughts also, but I'm going to, let's hear from the others and I'll add if we have some time um, on other very specific uh, kind of things we can do. 
Definitely, just to mention something because we started with data. So there is some statistic around like uh, um, facial recognition software. So when they were first initially, uh, you know, uh, designed, the data pool that you was used for training was basically 80% white, 70% men. And I'm sure since things have improved, but there is still a lot of scope to improve on the facial recognition uh, uh, side. So Shakir mentioned collaboration. What other factors that can help us? So let's go to Katrina. Hello. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, I wanted to just pick up on that point about facial recognition and really shout out the work of Big Brother Watch and Silky Carlo because um, recently they challenged um, the police use of um, facial recognition technology and I know that they won although the police you know are determined and hell-bent on to use it and I want to come to that because as a black woman um, I'm likely to me be, be, be misidentified by that technology which means that the police are likely to engage with me which means there's a likelihood I could end up being criminalized there are examples of the police doing a stop and search or stop an account and it escalating into an obstruction or an assault of a PC so it's not a matter of all um, we get it wrong and it, it's going to be okay getting it wrong can have disastrous consequences. So um, yeah, I really wanted to, I think it's great you highlighted that because that's another area of policing tech that is, you know, fast advancing. Mm -hmm. Most people are not aware of um, the, the impact it's having. Also just that it's inaccurate and people should just be able to go wherever they want without having their faces, you know, pixelated and put through a policing database. Um, coming back to what could be done, I think it's about diversity as well as like representation. So looking at who are creating these data sets, I'm so glad to see a face like Shakir's involved um, because basically far too often I get the impression it's people from Silicon Valley who, you know, don't look like anybody on this call. Um, and often because of, just because of how society stratified, it's the stratifications in society means that people don't necessarily have those personal interactions with others. So they don't have the challenge either just in everyday conversation to say, have you thought about that? But they're definitely not connected to activists or to people that are on the front line to understand the implications of their tech. And I want to say tech is not bias is, is not neutral. You know, it's done by people. People are biased. Every single one of us have biases. It's whether we unpick those and address them. So I think it's understanding that the actual tech itself may be neutral, but the people who've designed the tech are human. And we need to ensure that there's transparency around it and that there's a role for civil society organizations to challenge, but also to inform and educate the public because that's where who needs the movement needs to be coming from the public for us to be aware of what's going on, to have that, what's the word, I suppose, reasoned debate about what's good and what's not. And I'm finding far too often things are being procured and being pushed out without any, you know, real scrutiny. And then yeah. we have to deal with things after the horse is bolted from the stable. So I think it's about transparency and much more accountability and diversity within the AI field itself. And that's about tech companies doing more to recruit and to retain and to promote black professionals. And so I'm really glad that people like Naomi are on this call who are pushing and pu supporting younger people to go and live their best lives possible and to be the first in many areas and not to be scared of being the first because until we're in those spaces, we're gonna find that these things keep replicating themselves.
Thanks, Katrina. I think I always wonder whether kind of, you know, the public, the general public have enough awareness around, you know, algorithmic bias. Do we need to do a lot, you know, in the education uh, bit? So I know, for example, uh, I do I do some work with the We and AI, uh, which is an organization who is trying you know, to build uh, a toolkit for a, a racial AI bias. So that could be one thing. But I'm also interested, like Naomi, you are involved like in the education like part of it what do you think is there like a scope for education and maybe other things that we can do to mitigate the the bias definitely and working with young people helping them into university and into work rare has actually over the years built what, what you could also call an algorithm in the form of the contextual recruitment system. And so originally top employers in certain sectors tended to look for a certain type of grade profile and also certain types of work experience. And that appears colorblind, but it's not because we know some people have more access to good education and good opportunities. And what we were able to do is build a system that looks at people's achievement in context. So it looks at the school you went to and says, you know, what does AAB look like in your school? Is that what everyone gets or is that the best grade anyone's got for the past few years? And we can highlight to employers when somebody has actually outperformed in a school situation that maybe doesn't tend to produce good grades. And we also collect data on people socioeconomic status, so if they've been eligible for free school meals, or if they grew up in the care system, or if they came to the country as refugee, all things that we know have an impact on people's chances of achieving academically, and can put things in context. And the organisations that use it now see that they interview a much broader group of people because instead of having a very basic algorithm that says three A's or you're out, they now use all of this data to say actually this person has high potential because we're looking at more data points and that means more people get hired from a wider range of backgrounds and I think students are coming to see this being used in graduate recruitment and also at university level. Universities now do contextualization and they're looking to expect that from employers. And so I think it's about thinking about how we can use data to broaden opportunities for people and to put things into context instead of situations like the one Katrina was speaking about where it's actually being used to exclude. That's great, Naomi. I guess the other aspect to consider that hopefully will come through the uh, collaboration angle is um, we wouldn't want to see different sets or standards of uh, how to do, how to mitigate uh, bias, you know, being developed uh, in different companies in different countries, but they're all different, and that we need kind of like a form like standardization because this is a global problem. You know, we need kind of like a, a global solution, but then that still has like its local characteristic. So we need kind of like a sort of collaboration body, you know, you know, an ecosystem, you know, people getting together to, uh, you know, to to address this. this problem. I guess the other one, we've seen a lot of like the, the tech uh, guys like, you know, uh, Google and Apple and, you know, IBM coming up, you know, with the ethical principles. So I guess like, again, that's another thing where we would like to see kind of some like an overarching type of principle that, you know, cascade for, uh, you know, throughout uh, all the level of uh, the organization, you know, to help, uh, you know, address uh, this problem. Um, I guess like going back to you, Shakir, uh, what do you think in terms of, I guess maybe that's not a fair question uh, because you are like, you know, really involved in the tech. As a tech developer, do you think there is enough awareness around uh, 
those algorithms that causes problem. And if we can be, be brief, because we are getting to the end of the session. Yeah, I think, um, you know, like so many things, there is a change that you can detect over time. Over time, what five years ago, this conversation would never have happened. Today, we have entire conferences dedicated to this question. Five years ago, we would not have had those ethical standards. Today, all our companies have them. So slowly you are having that kind of change of time of questions. And then really now the next phase is coming is really to do what Katrina and Naomi are saying, cannot develop technology in the absence of the context. You need to go to the ground, work with this to understand. I think Naomi's example was just so powerful. When you actually develop the technology in the context, you can do powerful things. It's not that we are saying technology is awful. No, I'm That's end a it. great point uh, to end, uh, Shakir. So let me take the opportunity to thank uh, our guests and panelists, uh, you know, for this great discussion. And I would encourage the, the audience to, you know, to continue the discussion. Please do not hesitate to uh, reach out to myself and the panelists because uh, this is a relevant topic, and we need to continue discussing it until we, you know, we solve it together. So thanks all, and uh, wish you, uh, you know, uh, that you will continue continue you know the rest of the day and the rest of the conference uh, in a good way so i'm not going to tell you when we recorded this but since this paddle this is the one i tell everyone about yeah <laughs> this is my favorite i'm sorry i said it yeah i said part of it i'll put my name on it i had the idea and then you know the government basically called you know go and gave us a massive great opportunity to have a massive case study about algorithmic bias so here we go here we have it um we we, we added time into the agenda for this topic. It was so popular, we needed to have space to talk about this. And um, Jamila, Naomi, Katrina are doing amazing work in their respective uh, industries around some of these topics. So I'd just like to say a massive thank you to to, to the panel. Um, I'd also like to say a massive thank you to to uh, Deep Mind as well and Shakir, who, who again has a different angle on this, but. Um, um, is, is really pioneering this work ethically about what we think about this and DeepMind support has been amazing on this space. Do check out all the opportunities they have. They literally, literally pay for people to do masters. They'll get you a masters for free if you want to look at some of this stuff. Isn't that amazing? That's the activism we need in society by corporates today. So with that, I'd just like to say a massive thank you to everybody who contributed to this panel. And I actually think we need to have round two of this because this topic's not going away. Let's talk about cars. Elon, if you're listening, let's get Tesla, yeah? Let's let's let's, let's have that conversation next time around. Um, if anyone knows him, um, I'm very willing to take an introduction to. Um, I might even I might even give you a Dogecoin in, in, in response as well. <laughs> so there we go. Have a good one.